Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, we're grateful for all our listeners for being here with us. It's not very good English, but I'll just keep going on. Um, my guests on today's podcast are my friends Tyler and Catherine McDonald. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Richard. Hello. Um, what we're going to talk about is eating disorders, um, a topic we haven't talked too much about on this podcast. We've never done a podcast dedicated on this subject, and Catherine has been working through eating disorders, and we're gonna ha- and she's brave enough to share her story. And I've, as I've read through this story, this will help all of us. And um, I say a prayer, and Catherine said a prayer before we started, that I'll be able to ask the questions that bring out the story that Catherine would like to share and needs to share. And those of you that have eating disorders or people with eating disorders in your family, if you're counseling those, not from a clinical standpoint, but just from a friendship standpoint, that you'll have better tools. So, Catherine, we're so glad you're on the podcast and glad your husband's here. Just by way of introduction, this couple is Active LDS. They're calling in from Washington. Mm -hmm. Catherine, tell us the name of the city because I'll mispronounce it. It's Wenatchee. Wenatchee, and they are the parents mm-hmm. of two girls, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and Catherine is home taking care of the kids. That's a full-time job, and Tyler is an oral surgeon. Um, and so we're actually calling from after hours Dr. McDonald's office mm-hmm. where it's quiet, and the kids are home yeah. with the, with a babysitter. So I'm imagining your office there, Dr. McDonald, after a busy day, all quiet. It probably feels weird to be in the your quiet office with not a lot of people in the waiting room. Um, But thanks for joining us. And um, we're going to just kind of talk about Catherine's life um, as a, as a youth, as a teenager going into inpatient and what that was like. That's not exactly what anybody thought would happen to them to become inpatient for an eating disorder. Um, She'll introduce um, things like the riddle scale She'll talk about meeting her husband um, and talking with him about her eating disorder and how that, you know, wasn't a deal breaker, obviously, because they're married and have two kids and have a great marriage. And they'll talk about moving to Seattle. They'll talk about a relapse that happened, why they were married, kind of around big life changes. And um, talk about President Nelson's devotional up in Seattle at Safeco Field and some spiritual parts of this journey. So with that introduction, um, let's just start. Um, Catherine, talk about your childhood. All right, thank you. That was a great introduction, by the way. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Washington, um, over in the desert part, not the green part, and in the Tri-Cities. And I was the youngest of four kids and the only girl, and um, that was not the easiest situation. Um, there, was, there, was, there was dysfunction in my family. Um, we probably needed therapy, <laughs> but you know, I don't know if there was a stigma of going to therapy, but we never did. Um, I, I have, a brother who had some serious anger issues and I don't know if he ever got diagnosed with anything, but that was just really hard in our family 
um, dealing with that because it was not easy growing up. And so I ended up developing some childhood trauma and post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD. And that's really honest. And I, I would guess you didn't have any idea the context of what was happening. If I'd met you as a 10 year old or a preteen with this going on, you would have maybe, you just wouldn't have context to know how um, perhaps difficult the situation was and the, and this, what was happening to you internally that would be manifest later in different ways. So um, that's pretty honest. Yeah. And I think the older I get, the more I realize that a lot of families have really typical to have dysfunctional things. Maybe, you know, we're all dysfunctional to some extent and we can generate trauma, but I recognize that you probably had more of this than a typical youth. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to friends' houses and being like, why is it so calm? How is everyone just getting along and having a pleasant meal? And, and, um, I remember being very jealous of that. I even remember at age 14, begging my mom to let me like go live at a different friend's house. Cause I just, I couldn't take it anymore. And, and that didn't happen. But I remember by the time I was 14, it was starting to weigh on me and I was starting to have a lot of anxiety about being home and stuff. Yeah. That's, so it sounds like from coming out of childhood where those probably little perspective of just how unique your family situation was by 14, you became pretty aware that this was difficult and other families had a different feeling about them. Yeah. Talk about your teens. I know you became a track and, and field athlete and you had a, um, a gay uncle and just some of the things, some body shaming and church culture. Um, kind of yeah. share with us the teen years. Yeah, definitely. So, cause I know you also, you know, you're such a great ally for the LGBTQ community and I'm trying to also, um, find that ground of being an active member of the LDS church and also loving, you know, the LGBTQ brothers and sisters that we have unconditionally. Um, so I wanted to bring a little bit of that in my, in my story as well. Um, so yeah, I always enjoyed sports. That was kind of my escape as a kid. Um, anything that got me out of house, I was like, I'll sign me up. I'll do it. Um, so I was really drawn to, uh, any, any sports. Um, but when I got into middle school and high school, I, um, was pretty decent at track and field. I did the four by one and long jump and triple jumps and, um, just really enjoyed that. Um, and so there was a little bit, you know, of like body awareness around that, that, um, you know, people would make comments like if you missed a workout, like, Oh, you're going to get, you're going to like lose your muscles and you're going to get fat or, you know, just jokes like that. And, and it's already hard with, you know, puberty and, and changes that happen for females. And I remember one time at dinner, um, I thought I was eating normal, but one of my brothers was like, you're eating so much, you're going to get so fat. And like, just a lot of comments like that growing up. And it was frustrating because I was a normal weight. I wasn't underweight or overweight. I was just normal. And so those sometimes weighed on me. Um, 
And then I know, like, I have a gay uncle, and he served a mission. He served in Florida, and this was in, like, the late 60s, maybe early 70s. I don't know exactly. Um, And when he came home, which Utah was home for him, I know that he wasn't accepted by his community, and he ended up moving to Hawaii. And we just never really saw him ever. Um, And I know that he ended up having issues with drugs. And just sometimes as I look back now, um, I wonder, like, man, like, if, if he had just been more accepted. But I know, I know that time, the late 60s, was a hard time to be gay. Um, that's and so really, sometimes I just feel sad about that. That's really thoughtful. And I think I do understand how drugs and addictions often is a way to ma- mask pain. And I th- even if, and so I think we're doing better with the LGBTQ members, even those that choose to step away to keep them in the family mm-hmm. circle and keep them emotionally healthy so that they can make their way in society in a more healthy, thoughtful way than was possible um, generally in the late yeah. 60s. So that's a really thoughtful insight. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so there's just, um, and just to add to that, you know, with, with I remember one episode you mentioned church-generated pain and and that phrase resonated with me, you know, because there were times when it was like, people, you know, the leaders would be so nitpicky about, is your skirt long enough? Or you can't come to a church dance if your shoulders are showing, you know, just just so like, that's not the purpose. Shouldn't the purpose be we're grateful that these kids are here and, and wanting to participate. And so looking back, I'm like, man, I hope things can be different for my girls. And because I will be very aware of that. (laughs) I will speak my mind. Good. (laughs) So Talk about body. Um, talk about the phrase body shaming. What does that mean? Yeah. So that's just any time it, you know, if there is negative comments made toward, I don't have the exact definition, but, you know, if you're in a smaller body or a bigger body or any type of body and, and people make comments, you know, like, your body isn't the right size for those clothes or, or, you know, like, I mean, just recently in the news, there was this, a teen athlete, a swimmer and her entire swim team had the same swimsuit and a ref decided to, to disqualify her because she said her swimsuit was too immodest and it was approved and everyone was wearing it. And yet she was singled out. And to me, that is body shaming. That's helpful. So just an example. Is modesty different than body shaming? Um, I think it can be. Um, I think they can sometimes go hand in hand, especially in the LDS church. Um, I remember going to EFY as a teenager, and the EFY leaders would line us up in the morning before we could go to breakfast, and they'd make us put our hands up in the air. And this was like such a new thing for me. I was like, what is going on? And they saw like a little sliver of skin showing when I lifted my arms up and they're like, Oh, you got to wear some suit. And this was like middle of July in Utah. It's not like it's cold outside. And so I had to wear a swimsuit underneath my clothes 
all day. I mean, that is interesting. You know, that's modesty to the extreme and some body shaming because then, you know, all day I'm hyper-focused, like, Oh, like you're just always checking, like, are my sleeves long enough? Are my shorts long enough? And, you know, just trying to make sure, trying to make your body be acceptable. Um, what was the principle behind that? Was is there a found, is there a principle that those EFI leaders were trying to follow, um, or when you came into church dances and they checked everything, is there a principle they were trying to follow? And it just kind of feels like it sounds like it's gone a little too far. Uh, I think it draws from the for the strength of youth pamphlet. Does it? Okay. Uh, that's the only thing I could. Yeah, I just just have seen examples where, like, especially in Utah, where there's, like, a church dance, and they'll have, like, a list of what the girls can and can't wear, and it's a whole, like, page long. And then there's two sentences for the boys. And it's just like, do we really have, like, I mean, these are teenage kids. They have a brain. I think they can figure out what they I don't know. Tyler, were you aware of that difference? I wasn't aware of that until some thoughtful women pointed that out to me in the last year or two. <laughs> were you aware of that, Tyler? Yeah. I didn't. I didn't see it or experience it to the extreme that Catherine did. Uh, I mean, hands down. I mean, when she told me, I mean, I'm. I learned a lot about Catherine over the last year um, as she's been more involved with the, your podcast and other podcasts and. Um, we've had a lot of discussions about similar topics and um yes when she told me that they would line them up and make them raise their hands before going outside i mean that that's news to me and i mean it's we've talked a lot about how um like gender culture in the church and just in society in general has been so male dominated that uh that there's a lot of things that that made it more challenging for women, for sure. But the women internalize it too. Cause I, I would say, you know, the EFY counselors that pointed it out, you know, they were all female. So I think there is some, you know, internalization that, that some of the female members took on and then they feel the need to <clears throat> um, continue to, to push that. Yeah, that's that's extreme modesty. What would you do? What would you two do if you were in charge of a church dance? How? uh, What would you do as far as dress standards? I don't know how I would handle this. You know, I don't know if I'd put out dress standards ahead of time and say this is the standard for a dress in the church, and and then just leave it up to people to follow that, or if I'd how I'd handle that. Um, any thoughts how you'd handle that if you were in charge of a if you were in charge of a church dance? Yeah. Well, I think you know. I mean, we're talking to teenagers, so if we're talking to my four-year-old, she wants to wear a swimsuit everywhere we go. <laughs> and by the time she's a teenager, I doubt she's going to want to do that. Um, but I think there's. I think our youth are so much smarter than we give them credit for. And the other thing is, you know, meet people where they're at. Isn't that what Jesus did? So if they feel like they can't wear sleeves to a dance, I, maybe we can just focus on being glad that they're there and, 
and not worry as much. Yeah. I think I think kids would surprise you that they wouldn't show up. I I don't think it's I don't think it's inappropriate to have a, a set of standards, but um, as part of that, you could say that we ask that you um, wear modest clothing, and if you just leave it at modest instead of defining modest. Yeah, everyone's um, version is going to be a little bit different. Yeah, I mean this this has been a, a topic that we've talked about, and and what who who gets to define modesty and what's modest for one person is that the same modest for another person? But um, I think it could fairly be um, set as like a a basic um, a, a, some sort of basic universal standard um, yeah. that people are asked to follow. But so much, so much in the church is um, is your is that you are doing the best you can, and some people just aren't yeah. at the same level. Well, then the other idea is to not take modesty so extreme that you're body shaming. Whereas you could have two people with different bodies with the same type of clothes, and it's and you can point at one girl just because she naturally has like a larger bust and be like, that's immodest. And is that fair? Because that's, that's her body. Like, so I think, yeah, being mindful of not taking modesty to extremes and making sure we're not body shaming. Uh, it's a great discussion. I, the research side of my mind would love to find all the Latter-day Saints that were turned away from a LDS stance because oh, their clothes have... were... Immodest and see. Just line up all my friends. We what, all have one. <laughs> what percent of those um, got through that and stayed active, or what percent of those can kind of turn to that moment and say, "That's when I that hurt, and I didn't feel like I belong there, and I felt judged." And I do agree that Christ, um, and I think we just ought to trust people and empower people. And I don't think our young men, uh, you know, part of this narrative, and we need to move on, is that. Um, that I didn't even know until women pointed it out to me is that a lot of this was on the assumption men couldn't control themselves. So women were in charge of keeping men to keep the law of chastity by how they dressed or didn't dress. And we were just kind of um, not agents to ourselves. And I certainly recognized how wrong that thinking is. Um, and putting that on the burden of women is not fair. Um, any yeah, and comments on that before that we move on? That makes me sad for the men, too, because <laughs> then it, we're downplaying the men and, and we're saying, like, they, right? Like, yeah. we have some outstanding men in our church, and I, I think they're better than that. And I don't think, you know, I think that downplays their capabilities, and I don't think that's fair to them either. Talk about bulimia. So that's your first yeah. brush, if that's the right term, or first, you know, yeah. part of your so journey when, with eating, being, having an eating disorder. Absolutely. Yeah. So when I was 16, I still remember it so clearly. Um, I was starting to develop a lot of anxiety. I would feel anxious to go home. I didn't like being home because I never knew it was basically like walking on eggshells all the time. I just didn't know what was going to ever happen. Um, and so I remember being at a Christmas party and usually when I'm anxious, I kind of lose my appetite. But for some reason that night, I just kept going back and like nibbling at like the, um, the snack table. And the next thing I knew I had 
eaten so much and my stomach hurt and I got a wave of nausea and I ran to the bathroom and I threw up. And in that moment, I had this like little mini high because when you throw up, you get like this burst of dopamine and my anxiety was gone. And it was just kind of like this like little instant relief. Um, And it was kind of like this, like, oh my goodness, like that's the way to not have anxiety. Um, And so I didn't, I wouldn't say it became a full-blown eating disorder right away. And I didn't, it didn't turn into an addiction right away. Um, But I definitely realized that, wow, this, if I'm anxious and I do that, the anxiety stops. That was kind of where it all started. That's really thoughtful. Um, and I, I instantly think of the YSA men and some women that were working on pornography and often, um, they would talk about anxiety and stress and just, it wasn't Mm -hmm. really about intentionally wanting to sin or turn their back on God. It was just sort of a short-term relief. And I think about the iceberg concept that sometimes we see what's above the iceberg, like bulimia, um, but to really solve this, and I think this is what you'll help us understand, we sort of need to put that on the shelf and kind of get down to the bottom of the iceberg and understand what's going on down there to fully solve some of these things. So, um, get, Yeah, just, absolutely, 100%. I've, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I was one of the most powerful things a, a counselor taught me as a singles word bishop was the, the iceberg concept, because I as a bishop often just went above the waterline with what I could kind of see and what we were talking about. But often we had to put that on the shelf and, and, get, and sometimes get a clinical person trained that could kind of get to the bottom of the iceberg. But sometimes I think a parent or a friend or a priesthood leader can do that also. So talk right. about... No, I agree. Yeah, keep um, talking about a believer. I've, I've mentioned to Tyler before that I... I feel like I could sit down with any anyone who's had a drug addiction or pornography addiction and feel completely comfortable talking to them because I know what it's like to have something feel like it's controlling you and I and and understand that they're not doing this to hurt other people, even though you know family members sometimes are hurt and offended, but it's not about them at all. It's a way to cope with the pain they have. That's very thoughtful and very empathetic. Um, talk about Rosewood Rosewood Ranch inpatient. Yeah, so those, I those inpatient places always have the best names. I mean, I'm being kind of silly <laughs> here, but you know, every place I hear that sort of um, really helpful have these wonderful names. I don't know who names them, but I want to go I to know. all of them. I mean, Rosewood Ranch, Tyler. Doesn't that sound like some place we'd... <laughs> I'm being silly. It, um, I mean... it sounds beautiful for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. It so brought me to my life, yeah. Forgive my, for, um, forgive my moment of lightheartedness in a deep subject. So no, ahead, I like it. It's, it's fantastic. Um, yeah, so right after I graduated high school, I went straight to BYU-Idaho. Um, but again, I didn't have the, the tools that I needed to be able to take on, you know, the big studies and, you know, I graduated with a 3.8 GPA. So I, you know, well I, done. I did pretty decent. Um, but, you know, when you are not getting the nutrition and calories you need, your brain just 
stopped working. <laughs> and so I really struggled there and I really spiraled downward and I came home on a break and my parents were basically like, Oh my goodness. Um, you are scaring us. So, you know, they said I needed to find a therapist. Um, but again, eating disorders are not about weight or food. Um, and the majority of the time we would talk about food, you know, are you eating enough? Are you, you know, and, and then she basically said, I think you need to go inpatient. Like I, this is beyond me. And so I started looking at different inpatient facilities because at that time it had spiraled out of control that the bulimia, you know, I mean, it was daily, multiple times a day. I just, I couldn't keep any food down. Um, and, and that's where it kind of turns into this addiction side where even if I tried, I couldn't because it's, your body is not used to having food in, in its system. And so even if I was like, okay, I'm going to be good. I'm going to eat this food. I would do it. And I would immediately get nauseous because it had become such a habit. Um, so I, I was looking at a lot of different inpatient ones. And for some reason, Rosewood caught my eye. It was in Arizona. I'd never been there before. <laughs> I'm still not really sure why I chose that place, but I did. And I'm so glad that I did. Um, so I was 19 and I went to an inpatient treatment center in the middle of the Arizona desert. <laughs> wow. And yeah. How long were you there for Catherine? I was there for about three, three months, I believe. Yeah. Tell our listeners what you learned. Yeah. So when I got there, my kidneys were failing to start with. So I had to stay in like the nurse's station for three days until I was somewhat stable. And they would get us up at 6 a.m. and um, check our vitals, you know, weight, temperature. We'd have to strip down. They'd check us for any um, like scars because one thing about eating disorders is Sometimes that's not enough and people will start cutting themselves, you know, hurting themselves. Um, there were a lot of people, women there that also had, were struggling with drug and alcohol addiction as well. So I was very lucky that I was, I just had the eating disorder. I wasn't also battling self-harm and drug addiction on top of it because trying to, yeah, battle three at once. I just, my heart just broke for my, my Rosewood sisters. That's what we called each other. That's cool. Um, and, and so, yeah, we would, we'd go on a little walk in the desert at like seven and come back and have breakfast and we'd all stand around and hold hands. And we had a special little prayer, not really, a, well, a prayer or a saying that was, we would say before we ate about, you know, letting this food nourish us and um i should i should find that see if i can find that it was a sweet little saying that <clears throat> that we did and for someone who was used to saying you know prayers before eating it was um i enjoyed that um and so we would we would meet with we had group therapy sessions we'd meet with a therapist um we were blessed to be able to have equine therapy so we got to go work with horses um there was swim therapy, art therapy. We had a special yoga instructor 
instructor in Tai Chi who would come. And so it kind of sounds, I'm making it sound like a resort. Like it, it was, it was hard work though. I mean, yeah. because you had to, like I said, like you had to take all those layers off to get to the core of what was causing the eating disorder, you know, get underneath that iceberg, what's really down there. And, and the neat thing was, is, um, again, like the yoga instructor we had and my personal therapist, they were both, um, gay. And it was just interesting that I came there so broken and the people that are pushed onto the margins are the ones that helped me heal. And, and that's when, you know, I really like started think, started, you know, thinking, having second thoughts about, you know, why, why is society so scared of gay people? Like they, they loved me. (laughs) They loved me when I was broken. So. Um, did you leave, if you were in, what, what three things were different about you? Um, it's sort of like, you know, if you were, this is you talking to people that are wondering if inpatient would be helpful for them. Um, so what, what was different about you from when you went in to when you left three things or Um, one thing or one just Well, one, I was able to finally have a name for anxiety and PTSD because I didn't know what I, I didn't even know that I was dealing with those. That's cool. Um, and so it was kind of like, oh, that's why I can't breathe. <laughs> like, oh, that's why I'm like lying on the floor and like hyperventilating. That's a panic attack. Um, we also, oh, we also went to AA and EDA meetings. So like we did the 12 step program. Um, and and that was helpful to kind of go through those steps. Um, that kind of helped me, it helps kind of peel away some of those layers, you know, cause you're taking it one by one. Um, and just helped me really realize that, you know, eating disorders are not about food or weight. There's a feeling of loss of control. You don't feel good enough. You don't feel like you have a purpose in life. You know, you feel completely worthless. And everyone would say, you know, um, you just get to this point where you literally want to disappear. And so you're trying to make your body disappear. Um, that's pretty t- tender hearted for me to, to hear you say that of a feeling of not good enough, not having a purpose, a feeling of completely worthless. And I think a lot of people, maybe all of us feel that at times um, in our mortal journey. And that's pretty honest. And I recognize you didn't do anything wrong to create those feelings to come into you. Um, it was, and you're trying to figure out why you feel like this and, and why feeling like that can lead to an eating disorder that becomes clearer to me. And then a good program, this and a good therapist to try to, um, understand this and develop better. But I would assume you felt less broken and you didn't feel I mean, if I could take a measure up to you and your degree of brokenness you felt before you walked in to when you walked out and your feeling of own self-worth significantly increased during these three months, I, I assume that's true. Is that right, Catherine? Oh, absolutely. Um, a lot of the um, women there, you know, when they went in were suicidal, you know, just you're at that, you're at the most broken point you can imagine. And so being able to walk out and feeling confident and like, nope, I'm ready to take on the world and I'm ready to 
take on these challenges. I mean, it's scary. You know, I still had lapses and I still, you know, had to meet with, even when I went home, like, um, had to meet with a therapist. And when we went to, when, um, after Tyler and I were married, um, in Bellevue, Washington, when we were up in Seattle, we'd drive over and I would go to EDA meetings consistently. And that was, I mean, I had to have a support group. Um, one of the, I was listening to someone and they, and they shared recently that, you know, if you want to make a change in your life, you need community. And I needed other people who were struggling, um, or even if they weren't struggling, but just needing to stay in that community. Um, I also, NIDA is the national associate, um, let's see, now I can't think of it, national association for, um, National Eating Disorder Association. Sorry, it's getting my E and my A mixed up. And they had a location in downtown Seattle. And I worked downtown. And so I started volunteering there on their helpline. And that was really healing as well because people would call in and 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 some of them were suicidal. Some would say, hey, I have a knife in my hand. And so we had to kind of get some training to, to learn to help talk people down. And, and then I was able to help people find resources where they're like, I, you know, will my insurance cover this? Cause that, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> insurance is yeah, the worst right. about eating disorder coverage. Um, there are people that were in treatment that once they hit a certain rate, weight, the insurance is like, Oh, they're good. And kick them out. Um, and so just being able to have, you know, finding that purpose of I can go to EDA and help other people. I can volunteer at NIDA and help other people. Um, it just really boosts that sense of self-worth and that you're doing something good in the world. I'm struck. I think of the role of Satan sometimes. Um, I believe Satan is real and wants to destroy us, but I don't think your eating disorder came. I don't think Satan gave that to you. <laughs> Um, I think that's part of mortality and, and a logical um, sort of outcome from your upbringing, the different experiences you were having, and um, that kind of led to that in a pretty logical way. So I look at that as just um, part of mortality. I think where Satan comes in is that he he tells you because you've got an eating disorder that you're worthless and you don't have a purpose and you're no good and no one will ever love you and um, this is a terrible thing. And so I think Satan, as we just go through things that happen to us, um, he, he uses those things sometimes to happen to us, to define us and, and keep us. Cause I think one of the greatest lies Satan can give us is that we're worthless and we're no good. And God would never like us the way we are. And nobody would ever love us if they knew this about them. And then I think that just keeps us in the cycle um, do you agree with that? Not agree with that? Cause you're kind of been walking this road. <laughs> oh, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, especially, you know, we just, we just got off of this amazing general conference weekend weekend. Right. Right. And I noticed so many of the talks talked about, you know, our bodies yes. and Satan will never get a body, but if his goal is if he can convince us to hate our bodies, right. He's winning. And so he's going to do that in, in a lot of different ways. And I think an eating disorder is one of them. That's really very thoughtful. And I, 
you said eating disorder is not about food, and I wouldn't have thought of that. That's very. Mm-hmm. And I wrote down for thinking back to my wife says working on porn. Porn is not always about porn. <laughs> now, right. porn is a sin, and I don't want to sort of put that in the same category as eating disorder, which I don't think is a sin. Porn's a sin, but oh, I think I'm, I think for a lot of the wise things is um, it's not about porn. It's just dealing with stress, anxiety, loneliness, a need to escape. And as we understand that, I think we're able to make progress. Talk about uh, becoming a makeup artist. Yeah. So I've also, so my family is like a family of engineers and I did not get that gene. <laughs> I'm more of like the sporty, free spirit, artsy. When we were dating, Tyler would call me the firecracker, <laughs> just kind of do my own thing. Um, and so while I was, when I came back um, from Rosewood and I was trying to figure out if I was ready to tackle college again. And so I, I got, you know, I, I thought I always wanted to do makeup um, more for the artistic part of it, less than like, cause I'm not really like a girly girl. And so it was so funny. I, saw that there was a need and I went and applied and I got hired. <laughs> and, um, but I had so much fun with it. Um, I enjoyed, um, I worked it specifically with Bobby Brown makeup. And so it's a more like natural looking makeup versus like Mac, which is like your stage drag queen makeup. Um, and so that's probably why I fit in there, but, um, yeah, that's I had, cool. I had so much fun and, I had at least five coworkers who were gay and they're all guys and we'd do makeup. And one of them was also struggling with bulimia and I was Mm -hmm. able to, you know, talk to him and try to help him build up his self-worth. And, um, that was probably one of the funnest jobs I've ever had. (laughs) That's really cool. I just love the way you have all these experiences in your life and, and are so comfortable with all of heavenly father's children. Catherine, talk about the riddle skill. Yeah, so this is actually something I didn't know about until recently. Um, I was listening to Beyond the Block, um, Derek Knox and James yeah. Jones podcast. Yeah. I know you had James on your one of your episodes, um, so you got me to listening to them. Um, but they they were on one episode. They were talking about the riddle skill, and I had never heard about it. Um, so I don't know if that's just ignorant or naive of me, um, but it was made by a therapist like back in the 80s. And um, it's kind of, it refers to homophobic levels of attitude. And so there's this number one is like repulsion. Um, homosexuality is seen as a crime against nature. People who identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender are sick, crazy, immoral, sinful. So that's like um, one place that you could be. Um, two is pity. Like you're like, oh, it must be so sad to be gay. Three is tolerance, where you're just like um, being different is just a phase of development. Most people grow out of it. Um, four is acceptance. It implies that you know we can. You're gay. Um, you're a person, you know, what you do is your own business, but don't tell me about it. 
And so those are all kind of like the negative part, uh, parts of the scale. And then the positive levels move into number five, where um, you choose to be supportive and you want to start working as a safeguard um, um, for LGBT people, admiration, acknowledging that being LGBT in our society takes strength. Um, seven is appreci appreciation, um, which I um, I hear in your podcast all the time, you know, where we value the diversity of people, um, being willing to confront insensitive attitudes. Um, and eight is nurturance. Um, and I think that's where, like, you know, the allies come in, assuming the difference in people are indispensable in society. They view LGBT, LGBTQ people and culture with genuine affection, delight, and are willing to be advocates. And I'd never heard of the scale and in their podcast, they were kind of also comparing it to levels of racism. That's where, where, you know, sometimes just because you're not saying, not just because you're not no longer repulsed, doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden like nurturing, right? You could be on a different level. Um, and I just thought it was kind of an interesting um, thing for everyone to kind of think about and be like, where, where do I fall on, on, on that scale? And where have I been and have I changed? And um, I just think it's something to keep in mind. <clears throat> um, thanks for bringing that up. And I recognize I did, I've heard of this once and I can't remember someone messaged me and said I'd have become familiar with it. So thank you for bringing this up. And <clears throat> the thought comes to my mind that uh, we don't have to take the change, the doctrine of our church to get to the nurture stage. <laughs> Some may argue with me on that, but I, as I'm reading this on Wikipedia, assume that gay and lesbian people are indispensable in our society. And I would say in our church, people on this level view gay or lesbian as with genuine affection and delight and are willing to be their allies and advocates. So to me, that doesn't imply behavior. It just implies that we want to, and I, I kind of compare that to the body of Christ, where every part mm -hmm. of the body of Christ is needed and valuable, and none is more worthy or less worthy, or Elder Holland's choir, where even mentioned sexual orientation in the harmony that's created in the choir. So, you know, that's the thought that comes to my mind as you share this with our listeners, that even to get to this stage of um, the highest stage, I think, is nurturance. Um that it doesn't require a doctrinal change in our church. Now, some LGBTQ may say, well, to be an ally, you've got to campaign for doctrinal changes in the church or you're selling us out. And I, I don't agree with that. Um, I think, mm -hmm. and that's a whole nother podcast, <laughs> but I like this. I like this. Yeah. Scale, so thank you for sharing it with our listeners. Um, it's helpful for, to, it's a tool to look inward, I think, and sort of gauge our level of homophobia which is sometimes really hard to do. I can't take a, I can take a cholesterol test and kind of get a number. And I think I'm going to take one pretty soon and that could be a little sobering, but it's harder to look inward and recognize my degree of sexism, racism, or homophobia. Um, those haven't been particularly on my radar map as a privileged white guy in society to understand those. Um, talk about meeting your husband. And I want to ask before you talk about meeting Tyler, who's there with you, um, did you go down the road that no husband, no one will um, accept me, love me because I have an eating disorder? Oh, yeah. I mean, I almost kind of 
planned on maybe not getting married. You know, it was like I should get a good job and just, you know, live my life. Um, yeah, because, you know, you hear like you hear someone say you make yourself grow up like that's disgusting, right? Like who's going to want to marry that? <laughs> Um, and even in recovery, it's, it's like, well, even if I'm not doing that now, like it's in my past, like, right. I'm, I'm damaged good. Like, so yeah, it was, it was something that I did feel like if I did date someone, I always felt like I should be upfront about it. Like, Hey, I've struggled with an eating disorder or, Hey, I'm currently struggling. Um, I just felt like it's something good to share. So there's no surprises. And I like you being honest with that question. That kind of comes back to my feelings about Satan is he wants to make us feel we're not worthy. And that could be manifest in thoughts that come in around. I'm not good enough to date or no one will love me if they knew this about mm-hmm. me. And I just think um, that's one of the lies of Satan. Talk about um, how did you meet Tyler? Um, Tyler's always so good at this story. Do you want to share this part? Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, uh, well, the long story short, we met at a mutual friend's wedding reception. Um, mm-hmm. I was finishing BYU, um, graduating there, and I had planned on um, staying in Provo for the summer because I was think I was the statistic graduating BYU unmarried, <laughs> um, and so uh, trying to trying to stay in Provo where theoretically there's a higher probability of getting married. Um, but uh, I was invited to a friend's wedding reception back home in the Tri-Cities. And I, I, uh, I didn't uh, plan on going to that. But the day before, I felt um, this anxiety that I needed to go and uh, that was Friday afternoon and the reception was Saturday night about a 10 or 11 hour drive away and I packed up all my stuff on uh, on on Saturday or Friday night and then drove home the next morning just in time to get to the wedding reception um, and ended up uh, sitting at a table with all the bridesmaids and that's um, dangerous. That's a, that's yeah. a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, Catherine just happened to, to come over and, um, talk to us and, and, uh, and I thought she was funny and cute and wanted to, to date her. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I like Catherine. it when he took it. Yeah, I had just gotten off of work um, at the makeup job and was like, well, I'll have time to go to my friend's wedding reception. And I still remember walking in and and seeing this guy with a bunch of girls sitting at the table. And I was like, huh, he must be worth talking to. He must have something really interesting about him. So I went and sat right next to him. <laughs> That's awesome. How long did you date um, until you told Tyler about your eating disorder, Catherine? A month or two? No, we didn't stay for very long. So I had to be pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, probably a month or two in, I would say. Talk about just talk about how that conversation went down for you, Catherine, and for you, Tyler. 
Yeah, I still remember that clearly, actually. We had gotten some sandwiches and we went to eat them at the park, have a little picnic. And I just like felt this overwhelming urge, like now, right now is the time I need to tell him. And so I said, hey, I just want to let you know. I don't remember word for word, but, you know, I've um, struggled with an eating disorder. Um, and I go to a therapist. And I still remember Tyler's response. He was like, oh, like, would you like me to go to therapy with you? Oh, my gosh, Tyler. <laughs> and I thought that was the sweetest thing. Like, who offers to do that? Like, you know, because he wanted to understand more, right? So Tyler, I knew that he was a good guy. Talk about that response, Tyler. Where did that come from? Um, I, well, I really liked her. <laughs> um, but... Uh, I don't know. I think I, I kind of talking about even just bringing up the riddle scale and, and homophobia and just, just people are different. And I have always thought that we're all a little bit crazy inside. <laughs> um, we all have a little bit, there's, there, everyone has a little bit of something that it's mortality really brings them that, um, that is challenging. That is, is something that we need to overcome and that we need to work through. I don't think anyone is exempt from that and that um, we all deserve the same, the same love and, and appreciation and support uh, so that we can all get through this together. Um, so, you know. That's a good answer. I married a good one, huh? <laughs> but what brought, that's a good. great answer, Tyler, but I'll tell you what brought tears to my eyes was those first words that Catherine just said. That is a home run relationship moment. Um, could I go to therapy with you? Um, yeah. What a beautiful, I mean, there's what you said in those words, Tyler, what was unsaid in those words was huge. That this didn't change the relationship. It didn't change my feelings about you. Um, but you instantly went, instead of being, that thought of you just went, you skipped all that, Tyler, and you just said, "Can I go to therapy with you?" That's just yeah, it was huge. Not even any of my family had ever asked that. <laughs> so, so it was a big you know, deal. Maybe God led you to say those, but it's a sign of your character. It's a sign of both of your character. I think that's a beautiful relationship moment. It's I think you're both heroes for you having the guts to open up. Um, and, and Tyler, your response in my experience with relationships, and I'm not a marriage and family counselor, is those are some of the most beautiful parts of a relationship, especially in the dating process, where we kind of go through, we want to be perfect, and we want to put on our best selves in those early dates, and then we get vulnerable. Um, hopefully we get vulnerable before we get married, so we can see the real each other's, and those that can end a relationship, but it can also bring a couple together, because they both can kind of open up and be real. And then we find that we are all a little broken, but we kind of heal each other as we're more open. Um, and then these kind of broken parts of us come together to form beauty. Um, and that doesn't mean we just marry someone that's broken or someone that we need to rescue. We kind of need to be on the same terms where we're both kind of still equal, but both working on stuff. Um, so that to me is just a home run relationship moment. Um, that the two of you have, but it started with you, Catherine, having the courage to open up to somebody, obviously you really liked, and you may have had a lot of fear that you're going to lose Tyler if you open up. So, 
I call faith-based decisions we had the courage to open up instead of fear that might have kept you in um, in this knowledge you had an eating disorder and didn't want to talk to Tyler about it. Um, any more thoughts on pre-marriage um, before you got married? That's about it. Yeah, I mean, I interestingly, um, um, the uh, Catherine's parents actually asked to speak with me to make sure that I knew about that's cool. her eating disorder, and I thought that was kind of them and, and, and generous of them. And this is after Catherine had told me, um, and I just remember sitting with them and, and talking with them about it. And they just wanted to make sure that that was known. And, and obviously I, I thank them for that. And I just remember having this peace over me. And I just told them it, it was going to be okay. Uh, that, uh, that we were going to work through it and that it would, it would work out. Um, and that, uh, I remember early on in our Catherine and I's conversations about um, the eating disorder and, and struggles in general is as long as we don't give up, as long as we keep trying, I mean, that's, that's all that's required essentially is, is that we don't give up. If we are willing to continue to make progress our life, throughout our lives, then, then, then it will all work out. Um, and so I, um, I remember that, that emotion that I felt, um, talking with Catherine's parents and that, um, sort of, a, a foundation to, to my view on it. Um, sometimes in the church, we were blessed with, uh, opportunities of the spirit that, that without explanation, they, they speak to us, um, and communicate with us, not in words, but in feelings that, that secure our, our future and our, our hopes. That's really good. There's a great spirit. I hope our listeners can feel, I can feel it through the phone as I'm listening to two of you and pretty tender moments and the importance of personal revelation that you received this, both of you received this as the right thing. And I think sometimes the people open up with really difficult things and that gives the couple better information to make an informed decision if that's the right thing for them to marry. So I, I don't think any of us here want to say is everybody opens up with difficult things that that means they should stay in the relationship. But I think it helps us to understand and just make a better informed decision. I've always felt this idea that better personal revelation comes from better information. And, and clearly in this example, as Catherine opened up, um, Tyler got personal revelation um, that you're tenderly sharing, even as Catherine's parents opened up that this was the right thing to do. Um, and those are pretty tender moments for me. And, and I have a big smile on my face on this side of the mic, um, thinking about this is just a beautiful moment and a, and a foundation going into marriage of trust, vulnerability, and honesty. And doesn't mean like your marriage, like any marriage has been perfect, but there's some fundamental fundamental building blocks that are there that sometimes don't develop in a couple until later on. Um, did you, this is my ignorance about eating disorders, but I've wondered if people that have been bulimic or anorexic are less likely to have children. Was that a, a concern with either of you or is that just a myth um, that's in my mind? No, that, 
No, that can definitely happen. Um, you know, women often lose their periods. Um, I know that I lost mine. Um, thankfully, my body was strong and it would, when I was in recovery, it's always bounced back. Um, I know my mom had some infertility issues, not from an eating disorder, but I often worried that just from genetics that I'd have a hard time. Like, so, but yeah, no, there are, are women that, that really struggle with infertility from it. Were you worried about that, Tyler? Um, I don't, uh, I don't think I, that, uh, kids were on my mind as much as my mom was ready for grandkids before I even met Catherine and uh, had to remind my mom I needed to get married. First. <laughs> but uh, I think part of that pressure led me to um, just wanting to, to marry Catherine and get to know her and that a family would come when it came. That's great. And so I don't, I don't think that I was, uh, I mean, maybe in the back of my mind, but, um, I just had, uh, I had that comfort reassurance that, uh, that it's going to work out. And if we just keep doing our best, that, that we will, um, make things uh, happen. Yeah. That's great. And, and that's one of the tender mercies from the Lord is we haven't had any infertility issues. So. And then you walk this wonderful road together of, of you going to school, Tyler, at the University of Washington, I believe. Um, yeah. Talk about those, talk about those years of moving to Seattle, and um, I don't know how many years of school it was between graduating from BYU and becoming an oral surgeon, but I'm guessing it's eight, ten, seven. So tell us about that. Yeah, it was it was eight for me. the The path that I that I chose was eight. So four years of dental school and four years of surgery training. Um, and dental school was so we got married. And we had about six months of, of, I call it our honeymoon where I was just, we were both just working, um, right before dental school and we were going on hikes. I had a job where I worked for a week and then I took a week off. I worked for a week. I took a week off and, um, we did a lot of camping and hiking and, and really enjoyed our time together. Um, and then dental school came and that was, uh, a, an adjustment for sure. Um, I, I naturally uh, am hypersensitive about my grades and things like that. So I, I studied a lot and I, I practiced a lot and, uh, and partway into it uh, felt like I wanted to, to pursue surgery. I had done some research at the children's hospital and um, enjoyed working with the cleft and palate team there. And so I, I wanted to pursue oral surgery and that meant a lot of rigorous, even more rigorous studying and and other things. So, uh, our, my academic career certainly put, a uh, a little bit of a strain on, on our relationship as it does for just about everybody, but uh, we made it work though. We have happy memories. We made it work and we have some happy memories through it. What's the most common type of oral surgery you do? Um, now I'm in private practice, so most of what I do is teeth extractions, uh, bone grafting, dental implants. Yeah, I've appreciated the oral surgeons in my life. I, re- I I don't want to make this podcast about me, but I've never. I just remember getting my wisdom teeth out back in 1978. I don't know what they put me mm-hmm. on 
Dr. McDonald, but I, when I came to the waiting room, I was singing at the top of my lungs, I hope they call me on a mission. When I had a foot or two. So that song somehow is just embedded in my brain and whatever they put me on. And it was right before my mission. So anyway, um, but thanks for what you're doing with your career. And I think, I think both of you, because as you both would share with our listeners, um, Tyler's not just the hero of becoming an oral surgeon and now being able to bless people's lives. Both of you are as you've walked that road together. So Catherine, you're a hero too for your work supporting Tyler and working during this time and having kids. So um, I sure appreciate you young couples. You guys are in your 30s. I don't know if I mentioned that before we started. Um, but you've got a lot of years ahead of you serving and helping other people. Talk about a relapse um, that happened, Catherine. Yeah. So like I said, in Seattle, I was in a really strong recovery. Um, I had good friends and church and just the places I volunteered and and um, just those sweet baby years. There's nothing like newborns. And so I was really strong recovery there. And then when we moved to Wenatchee, you know, that's, I, I was excited for it, but I guess I didn't realize that it would have such a, um, I wasn't expecting a relapse. Um, and so that was a big change when we moved to Wenatchee and Tyler's job was really stressful at the beginning. And so he wasn't home a lot. And my youngest daughter, <laughs> Bless her heart. She went through the worst case of terrible twos I ever knew existed. And that kind of pushed me over the edge. Um, and, and then, you know, in Seattle, you know, I volunteered and did all this stuff. And so I kind of started to lose like my feelings of self-worth and having a purpose in life. Cause you know, you, after so many diapers, you're just like, what is my purpose? It's honest. Um, and even though I love my kids with everything and it just, you know, again, that loss of control, like my husband's never home. I can't, I don't know how to help this toddler. And my oldest daughter, who was kind of my rock, like she started school, so I didn't get to see her throughout the day. And, and so I just kind of fell apart. And the next thing I know, I was back in a full-blown eating disorder. Um, and that was really scary. Um, but I think the biggest thing I learned was you know, the, the tools that I, I learned in my twenties that worked for my twenties didn't work for the, the new life I had at age 30. Right. I didn't have kids. I wasn't, you know, just so many different changes. I'm in a different place. And so, um, after trying it on my own, trying it on my own, I realized, nope, I need my support. I need my community. And so I found a really good doctor and therapist and nutritionist who all specialized in working with eating disorders to help me get back on track and get those new new tools that I needed for my new phase in life. And actually one of the first episodes of yours I ever listened to was, I believe it was Thomas McConkie, where he, he talked about meditation. Yeah. And that was actually one of the, the biggest things that we did was there's something called biofeedback therapy. And it was different, you know, I would go see my regular therapist and then I'd go see this biofeedback therapist and also EMDR therapy. And we were able to kind of peel back those layers a little bit deeper to tackle some of, more of my post-traumatic stress 
that I thought was gone, but kind of was coming back when, when my daughter would throw these horrible tantrums. And so, and then with the biofeedback therapy, um, my homework was to go home and meditate for 20 minutes every day. And I can't tell you how many times I'd be sitting meditating and I just suddenly get these, these overwhelming emotions and just burst into tears and and it was like a healing crying though, right? Good. Like, have you ever cried and like you feel better afterwards? That's good. Um, and I guess there's science to it that the neuroplasticity of the brain, um, meditation just can do some really healing things. And, and so I, I was, yeah, that, that I related to that episode. Cause I was like, that's what helped heal me was meditation. Isn't that cool? One of the um, thanks for being so open about that. And that sounds like a big surprise. How long would you say the relapse lasted until you kind of felt like you were back on where you good, the ground you wanted to be on? Um, well, I'd say I kind of relapsed and I tried a year on my own and then it took like another good year with, um, support. And, so this um, and a couple you know, years. I, again, it was, I, since I had done therapy before, I felt like things were able to go a little bit quicker um, than my first time. But again, I was learning new skills to use to cope. Um, are you glad, this is kind of a question that just popped in my brain. Are you glad you relapsed um, in the sense that it's, that it's given you additional tools to perhaps head off another relapse or help other people that might relapse, or if you do relapse, you have better tools to pull out of it quicker. Yeah. I, you know, it sounds crazy to say, I'm glad I relapsed, which is insane. Cause that's really painful. Time. <laughs> I felt like I was dying. <laughs> like that's one thing is eating disorders are painful. There's a lot of physical pain involved. Um, but I am grateful that I relapsed because I feel like this relapse took me to a stronger place of healing, like even more than I ever had before. And I really had to learn who my savior was. And I was able to get really to the core um, of some things that I thought I had already dealt with that maybe I hadn't fully um, and I feel like I came back stronger. Like there's a lot of people will get like the, the tattoo of like the, what is it? Phoenix rising, um, out of the ashes, it comes back stronger. Um, and that's how I felt. I felt that I, I came back even stronger. Yeah. I will answer that by saying it's probably the best thing that's happened to us as our marriage and Catherine as a person, um, we never obviously never wish any, anything on somebody. Um, and a lot of times, I mean, I've been thinking about this recently through uh, just over the last couple of months that um, we really don't progress unless we struggle. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, Catherine's struggle was, was pretty significant. And um, definitely I, she is a, a better mother, a better wife, a better person. Um, it is incredible how much growth she's had um, over this last year um, because of the struggle. Uh, That's really cool. This is a great love story. Tyler, ask me, 
sometimes us men see people that we love in our lives that are struggling and you're medically trained and uh, I'm not, but sometimes we can't, we can't solve or heal or fix people um, that we really want to. And I, I don't know if you felt some of those feelings, but talk to men or women that have people in their lives where they can't completely solve everything. (laughs) Yeah. It's uh, especially when it's um, someone in your family or someone you love. Uh, I mean, we hopefully love everyone, but the people that we are connected with more, it it takes it to a completely different level. Um, But um, yes, definitely. So one thing that I obviously is, uh, somebody with anorexia and bulimia, uh, you, it's, it's sometimes hard to hide. Um, and so I, it, it was evident that like, it was easy for me to see when Catherine would struggle more and struggle less, um, at some point. I mean, that's not always the case, but, um, th- it was hard for me one, not, not understanding. I, I understand eating disorders better now than I ever have, but, uh, understanding that um, that that food isn't the problem, and that there's there's more to it than that, and helping them helping them heal uh, in other ways that will um, that will make them rise up from their struggle, and being patient with it. I, the biggest thing for me was it, it wasn't. Like you said, there's, there really wasn't anything that I could do uh, to to make her get through her struggle. I mean, um, sitting with her eating or having uh, doing various different things, it was more I felt like I almost felt broken with her. Um, and that all, all that I could offer her was was my love and support. Um, and just knowing that that I w- that there wasn't judgment, and that there was that there was love, and that um, that it was going to be okay. I mean, I just I, I always fall back on that that thought. I uh, President Hinckley was kind of my my prophet growing up, and um, he's one that. Uh, I, it's going to be okay. If we do our best, it will be okay. Um, and so I, I feel like those people that we want to help the most, um, if they aren't ready to be helped, then we love them and wait for them to be ready to be helped. Um, and I think we, Catherine and I kind of juggled that and balanced that for, for a year where I probably wanted to help sooner. Um, I probably wanted her to, to get through her struggle sooner, but um, we just kept loving and and working and um, offering support. Yeah, he did such a good job. He never tried to police me. I think that would have caused a lot of problems. You know, he knew that I was seeing my doctor and my therapist, and that there were people outside of our marriage to be accountable to. If that makes sense, because when you start to try to take that control a person with an eating disorder is just going to fight back harder. And so, um, yeah, he, he really did such a great job just loving me. And just, you know, I would ask for a lot of priesthood blessings, um, and those were really helpful. 
um, because I would get these beautiful moments where I just felt free, even just for an hour, where God would send me that tender mercy, where the blessings would say, be patient. You're not healed yet, but be patient. And then I would get this little, like, for an hour, just feeling free. And so that those were really sweet blessings. Um, there's been some beautiful things said um, on both of your parts. Um where this could potentially divide a marriage. and But I love what Tyler said, is my job is to love and support and no judgment. And I think all of us can do that for somebody else. <laughs> um, my elders court yeah. president told a, the story of his wife had a brother die by suicide, and obviously that was really hard on his wife, and he loves his wife. And after a lot of prayer and thought, you know, the revelation came to him is you can't be your wife's savior. You've got to be your wife's husband. <laughs> um, um, you didn't try to become her therapist, Tyler. Um, you didn't try to, I love the word accountableness. Um, Catherine wasn't necessarily accountable to you every day for what she ate or didn't ate, but you gave her love and support and let other professional people, um, and maybe the savior in some ways here too, even though this isn't a spiritual problem in my mind, it's not a, a spiritual weakness to have an eating disorder. Um, but maybe the Savior has a role to give us hope and heal us and um, and bring us together. So this is, and I love your answer where you're glad this happened, because I, I think that's a great answer. And I think, you know, if you were on the podcast 10 or 20 years from now and talked about the lessons you're learning now and the ability then to be better parents to your two daughters, um, and they may never know why, <laughs> exactly you got it and were able to help them or other people that come into your life or as you serve in church in other ways. Um, I just think there'll be some incredible paydays for both of you. And I'm sure those have already happened where you're able to uniquely help someone because of this, because you're walking this road together. Um, so that to me is just part of our mortal ministry is we need to heal each other. Um, I tweeted out today something to the point that um, the covenant path to me isn't just me isolating myself into perfection. It's me um, reaching out and lifting others and bringing others with me. <laughs> and that's how I really mm -hmm. save myself. That's really how I stay on the covenant path and save myself is saving others. Um, oh, true. So um, talk about Safeco Field with President Nelson. Yeah. And just one comment on, on your, your tweet there is one thing I've learned is that our savior is all about community, right? We can't, we can't just say, well, I'm going to, like you said, like, I can't just save myself. Like we're expected to go out and help, help each other. Like if I've learned anything about the savior is he's all about us reaching out. Um, but yeah, safe co-filled. Um, so one thing, you know, with eating disorders, you know, there's so many things that play into it. You know, it's, um, uh, you know, biological, genetic, uh, there's psychology, there's just all sorts of different things. And, and so sometimes it was just, it felt so hopeless and the anxiety would just be so strong. Um, and I remember praying and feeling like my prayers just weren't making it to heaven. And 
And I remember saying, I will give this one last shot, but I'm going to need some serious help. And when you say one last shot, what do you mean one last shot? Was that... You know, at the time, I'm not even sure if I knew what that meant. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> I didn't know if that meant like I was going to just give up on church or my family or myself. Okay. I think it could have meant could've a meant lot all of, things. of those things. I think okay. in the moment, I was just so broken. I. That's really honest. That's good. I didn't have an answer. Um, and, and it was hard because I really, you know, I really believed in God. I've had some you know, really miraculous things happen in my life earlier. I got, um, in 2010, I was in a really horrible car accident. And one that I still remember the paramedics look of shock when they saw me just standing there and they were saying, people don't walk away from this kind of car accident. They, they, they die. And all I had was a bloody nose and a, a cut lip. And, and, and in that accident, I had, felt the arms of angels around me. And so, you know, I was feeling conflicted. Like I have had such spiritual moments and right now I was feeling nothing. Um, and so I just, I started really reading the book of Mormon every day and, you know, president Nelson had given the book of Mormon challenge and, and I had heard that he was going to go to Safeco field up in Seattle and we're living in Wenatchee. And I was like, well, we lived in Seattle for eight years. Like, I kind of feel like I should be able to be a part of that. <laughs> and I remember dropping my girls off to school. And as I was driving, I got a very strong feeling like that we needed to be there, that Tyler and I needed to be there with President Nelson. And so I, it was funny. I texted one friend and was like, okay, I'll see if I can find some tickets. And, and I text her and she's like, oh yeah, I can get you tickets. How many do you need? <laughs> so, so we um, got a babysitter for our girls and we drove over and were able to sit in safe field with president Nelson. And I remember feeling the spirit like I hadn't felt in a very long time. I remember feeling like that stadium was in some degree lifted up, like it was floating almost. It just, it was an incredible experience to be able to be there with the prophet. And not that I got to go shake his hand or meet him face to face, but it was like, he was right there. Um, And I remember afterwards, Tyler and I went to the hotel room that we were staying at and we sat quietly for a while and we had our journals and we made personal goals couple goals and family goals and we were like hey like this is serious like we got to implement these and i i really feel like that was a big turning point don't you think yeah i love that story and i love this principle sister jane clayson on episode 100 talked about her depression and Mm -hmm. the inability to feel the spirit and um, I'm aware of sometimes missionaries that go serve, and when they don't feel the spirit in the first part of their mission, they conclude they're not worthy, and they sort of mm-hmm. go back and reconfess everything. And I, and we, I wish we taught other other logical ways we don't feel the spirit. Um, and some of that is when we're just not emotionally healthy enough to feel the spirit. And 
and then and then to not look inward and think oh now i'm really broken i can't even feel the spirit Um, but i love the way you hung in there and i love the way then you acted on your impressions to go to Safeco Field, it's kind of weird to hear Safeco Field because I think of sports and then say President Nelson. Go Mariners! Um, I love the way you had that experience together. And I love the way you came back and journaled about that together. And I think that helps hardwire these spiritual experiences in our mind. Because sometimes when I don't have a spiritual experience for a while and then I have one, I kind of get slapped up in the face and go, that's right. That's what it feels like. I think journaling reminds us of those moments um, for some of us, you know, they don't, you know, they don't always just come every day. And I think a lot of Latter-day Saints go long periods of time without having that kind of experience that you had in Safeco Field. That's really yeah. cool. And and shout out to Jane Clayson Johnson, because I read her book, um, Silent Souls Weeping. That was actually one of the ones that, that helped get me through. Yeah, and I've had, I've been open in the podcast that, you know, with my own time I've seen a counselor a couple of times for my own mental health. And I'm like you in some ways, I'm really glad I've walked that road a little bit because I just understand my empathy has gone up better. And I just, I don't know every road, but I have better tools because I've walked on difficult roads. Um, talk just in closing, there's a few more topics we kind of outlined ahead of time, but we're kind of coming to the end. Are there, are there just I'd love to make sure we get to everything you want to share with our listeners, Catherine. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think, you know, especially with, you know, suicide is a big topic these days and, and mental illness. Um, I think of sister, oh, I don't want to say her name wrong, Arbusto, who spoke at yes. General Conference. Yes. That, I mean, she's, she, she's, I, I think I took like two, three pages of notes while she was speaking um, because her whole message was, you know, her father died by suicide and she talks about so much mental illness and that, you know, we're, we're in a place where um, I love, I love the war chapters in the book of Mormon. Um, those got me through so much because even though I wasn't out physically fighting in a war, the battles were all inside and, and we've, we've got to be aware and we've got to be willing to learn and we've got to be willing to step up and, and help people. Um, and so I've, you know, as I'm, you know, now I, I feel like I'm, I'm back in a, a good recovery, full recovery. You know, I've, I've, I've been reaching out again to NIDA and I took their, they have an education empowerment program about providing support and um, helping people access treatment and education that raises awareness um, to help reduce the shame and stigma with eating disorders and other mental illnesses. And, and, and especially with, you know, as we talk about LGBTQ, um, our brothers and sisters that, um, you know, that they are in certain circumstances that put them at higher risk. Um, I, I met many people who have, have struggled with an eating disorder and are also gay. And I don't, and I want to be clear that, you know, that having an eating disorder is not like being gay, that people who are gay can have an eating disorder, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. I and we just sort of, we got to be reaching out and, and loving 
loving each other and helping each other because like you it goes back to that body of Christ. You know, if your hand's hurting, you know, you got to get help for it. If your brain's hurting, you got to get help for it. Now those are all, uh, it's really thoughtful. And I'm, I've read some quotes that you you two may be familiar with, but um, on these podcasts, I love this concept, the wounded healer and a minister's mm-hmm. service. And that's who all of us are, but particularly you right now, um, Catherine, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. And so, you know, the de- desert of eating disorder and um, but you can authentically talk to that and lead people out of that desert and give them hope. Um, I love this other quote by Henry Norman. That's, it's a little longer. I'm not sure I'll read the whole thing, but he says, over the past few years, I've becoming increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weaknesses. Mo- mostly we're afraid of our weaknesses, um, that we hide them at all costs and thus make them unavailable to others but also to ourselves. And in this way, we end up living double lives, even against our own desires. One life in which we present ourselves to the world, to ourselves and to God as the person who is control and the other life in which we feel insecure, doubtful, accused, confused, anxious, and totally out of control. The split between these two lives causes a lot of suffering. I become increasingly aware of the importance of overcoming the chasm between these two lives it's amazing in my own life that true friendship and community became possible to the degree that I was able to share my weaknesses with others like you did with Tyler. <laughs> That's not in the quote. I added that. Um, often I became aware of the fact that in sharing of my weaknesses with others, the real depth of my human brokenness and weaknesses and sinfulness started to reveal themselves to me, not as a source of despair, despair but as a source of hope. As long as I try to convince myself or others of my independence, a lot of my energy is invested in building up my own false self. But once I am able to can truly confess my most profound dependence on others, like our spouses, I added that, and on God, I can come in touch with my true self and real community can develop. So that's kind of what we're doing in this podcast and what you two are doing with others and And that's why I think your marriage is this beautiful love story because you've been able to talk about real stuff. And I think the paydays are down the road for you, not only, well, payday right now, just in a good marriage, but paydays in your ability to really help your kids um, and talk to them about real things um, and going to bed at night, knowing that this experience has helped us be better parents. And, and Tyler, just loving you, Catherine, as you're recognizing you're able to do things for your kids because of this road and Catherine recognized that in Tyler and, and your kids seeing you and the role models you are. And I don't want to put you on a pedestal and make you feel like you're perfect because you're going to interrupt me and remind me of all your weaknesses. But this is just, this is a beautiful story that you've shared with us. Um, Any closing thoughts? Let's start with you, Tyler, and then Catherine. Um, I yeah, I am just so almost anxious for for Catherine and for um, for the work that she's done and put in in her recovery. That uh, she has plans to to help other people um, 
not even just with eating disorders, but she she has a desire to go out and and help people who are struggling. Um, and so I I hope that um, that people will be able to share their struggles and some come building on the, some of the quotes that you shared there that I feel like, like we all have struggles and we all have ways that we can support each other. And when we hide our struggles is when um, we fail. And when we share our struggles is when we can all win together. Um, and Catherine um, is, starting to do a lot of things to reach out and to share her struggle and hopefully sh sharing that struggle will help other people uh, share theirs um, and, and that we can all be better people because of it. Catherine. Um, I just, I, I agree. Those quotes you shared were just perfect. Um, and we often say in recovery that secrets keep us sick. And, and I believe that, that, you know, Satan wants us to have secrets, but when we put them out in the open, it's amazing how they don't tie us down. And, and I think for me, staying in recovery is that, that next part of being out there and listing the people that don't have hope. Um, because I know what it's like to be in that spot. And, and so I'm finding ways to finding platforms to be able to kind of publicly share that. Um, because it's not like you can just randomly go up to people and be like, Hey, do you have an eating disorder <laughs> or are you struggling with something? Um, and so, you know, just like you talk about, you know, people wearing like a rainbow pin or something to church, um, to say, Hey, I'm safe to talk to, you know, I hope that I can find all sorts of ways to do that, to help people so people know that I am a safe zone and that there's no judgment on my end. There's no shame. <laughs> um, and I, I just, I just want to help people feel loved. Um, thank you both for joining us. Um, I am going to reference sister, the, the Relief Society sister, um, her last name is Alberto, if I'm saying it right, A-B-U-R-T-O, Rena, R-E-Y-N-A. Um, thanks mm -hmm. for bringing up her talk, um, Catherine. That was, um, the f I think, the first talk of Women's Conference, and I did watch Women's Conference with my wife. And if you ask me what my favorite talk was, it was her talk for the very things you um, mentioned and her ability to talk about suicide or the her father who died by suicide and just that real vulnerable and open, open discussion over in general conference, I thought was wonderful. And then the subsequent conversations that allows in, um, in our congregations and our families about the subjects that you two are willing to talk about. And to me, that's just maturing of, of all of us. And, but I have hope in you younger members, you're, you know, in your thirties, you're like 20 years younger than me. So I look at you as you know, the future of the church and the, and the ability to talk about um, the things that Christ would probably be talking about and showing how to love and support each other. Um, so thank you, um, Tyler McDonald, Catherine McDonald, and all our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. <laughs>